Welcome, everyone. Season 2, Episode 3 of High Action. I'm currently staring at the faces of Mr. John Story and Mr. Perry Smith. We've all got our guitars in hand, and we're really excited to talk about jazz standards today, jazz tunes. Uh, But before we do, we want to give a shout-out to AEA Microphones, which, if you were a Patreon member, you'd be able to see I have on my little amplifier behind me. I have the AEA N22 ribbon mic. John, I believe you have uh, at least a couple AEA mics as well, yeah? Yeah, they're fantastic. And uh, I think, let's see, their website, I believe, is ribbonmics.com, mm-hmm. or you can just Google search AEA. They're fantastic, and they're made in the U.S. of A. They're in fantastic. Pasadena, right? <laughs> Over in Pasadena at the former RCA factory where they built the original RCA mics in the 1930s and 40s, the same exact building, which is pretty wow. Yeah, pretty cool. cool. Yeah, Perry, you have some AEAs. I know you've got some some Neumanns, and I don't have an AEA, um, but I love that company. And back in the day, we knew uh, someone that worked there for them. I remember the the great Paul Pegas. He was a sound man at the Jazz Bakery. And I think he ended up working with AEA, so mm-hmm. we have a nice little connection with them. Uh, we also want to remind our listeners to check out what we're doing on Patreon because all of this audio that you're hearing, you'd get to see the video of, uh, including all of the things that we're playing, actually getting to see how we're playing them, how we're fingering them. It's just a, it's kind of a more legit way to engage with the stuff we're playing. Anything to add on that, John? Perhaps yeah, the Teespring a- store? Well, first of all, just thanks everybody for tuning in over there at Patreon. I mean, it's been great getting some messages from some from some new followers on there, and um, yeah, we're posting the videos. So for those guitarists who are checking out the podcast and you actually want to see us uh, doing some playing and see what we're doing on here, uh, you know, feel free to follow us over there, and uh, and we and we'll reach out to you for sure too. So we really appreciate everybody joining us over there for the New West Guitar Group and High Action Patreon page. We definitely do. Anyway, so getting to today's subject of jazz standards, which is neatly following last week's topic of American songbook tunes, I think a great way to start this is talking about how a lot of jazz standards that we know, meaning tunes that were written by jazz musicians for the purpose of expanding, improvising on, playing on gigs, really stretching on. Let's take a song like Donna Lee by Charlie Parker, which was actually a contrafact on a songbook tune, Back Home Again in Indiana. Right. Um, Another example of that would be Olio by Sonny Rollins, basically being based off of I've Got Rhythm by Gershwin. So those, you know, songbook tunes and standards really overlap and go hand in hand. And I'm curious, John, what were some of the earliest jazz standards that really lit you up when you heard it and made you want to learn it? Yeah, well, you know, my first opportunity to play jazz was like sixth grade stage band at my middle school, and we were playing like not jazz standards, you know, whatever middle school jazz band tunes that you play, like, uh, you know, Tin Roof Blues and B-flat, you know, jam or whatever. But then I went to um, the University of Oregon summer uh, jazz improvisation camp when I was 13, and I was placed into a combo, and the first three tunes we did were Doxy, Tune Up, and Blue Bossa. And so those are my first three tunes. And it's, you know, it's interesting you asked that question, Will, because 
there's so much about our history that it's like a lightning bolt hitting us, you know? And when I saw those tunes in the real book font, I was like, man, this is really interesting stuff. This is a whole world I want to get into and learn these chords. And um, yeah, so those were the first three tunes. And there's still today the first three tunes I teach a lot of my students when they're beginning with jazz. Perry, do you remember your early... uh contact with jazz standards that really spoke to you yeah gosh i mean it's going back i, I remember learning tunes like footprints that was one that mm-hmm. uh you know the wayne shorter tune more or less a c minor blues that kind of came down the pike early but just hearing the difference between like what giant steps sounds like versus blue skies i mean to <clears> me that's yeah. just like a it's a harmonic world of difference and i think well there's a connection you can make between like the contrafacts coming from the harmony of the songbook tunes that people were playing and that evolving into uh, jazz musicians writing tunes that the harmony wasn't linked that same way. That The harmony mm-hmm. could go a lot of different directions, whether it's a Coltrane tune or a Wayne Shorter tune or a Monk tune. Harmonically speaking, you get some much more adventurous movements. That's a good point. You know, like Miles Davis kind of blue was a whole new sound. It basically created a new genre uh, with a lot of modal playing, like, you know, going between two keys, D minor and E flat minor. I mean, that was fairly unheard of before then, especially on the scope that that album had. Um, John, you mentioned, you know, growing up playing in the big band in high school, and that was huge. Like, I remember I heard Harlem Nocturne, and that's such an interesting melody. I had never heard a melody like that before then so mm-hmm. yes you know, indeed to sure. all of our young listeners you should definitely sign up for big band <laughs> or yeah. pops orchestra or whatever they might call it <laughs> call it yeah. now in middle school and high school exactly so i'm gonna play an example of a tune that's really great to me that's really meant a lot to me which is daoud really great standard written by mr clifford brown it was actually first published in 1954 on Jazz Immortal, um, although I think the most popular version is the Clifford Brown Max Roach album. And um, some of the defining characteristics that this song has that I think really makes it an exemplary jazz standard is it has an interlude, it has an ending, it's it's got hits in it. It's more than just a lead sheet. It really is kind of a built-in arrangement song. Every time you play the song, there's that call and response, right? Uh, sorry. Right? There's the melody, there's the hits, and they interact with each other. Uh, I'm going to take a pass at it. Wish me luck, guys.
Ugh. There's a lot of moving parts in that song. Yeah, man. And it's still a bit early in the day to be playing them all. So bear with me, listeners. Uh, no, you, bear no, with you me. nailed it, man. Yeah, I like that you got that ending. Uh, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, was, it's a classic. I listened so much to Clifford Brown when I was younger. That stuff was so fundamental to me. Uh, and like you're saying, the built-in arrangements on those songs are pretty amazing. The connection with Max Roach and him, it's all just like so polished. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, like they, they knew what they were doing. It wasn't like they were just getting up there and playing off the cuff completely. You know, they mm-hmm. had they had like a little bit more energy they put into it in terms of sculpting the arrangements and stuff. And yeah, the harmony on that moves around a lot. But like a songbook tune, there are some similarities, right? You got the A-A-B-A form. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So when you're blowing over it, you can kind of still be in that sort of 32 bar zone a little bit. Mm hmm. Uh, who wants to go next, John? What do you What do you say? Yeah, well, man, great, nice tune, man. I love that tune, and um, yeah, I mean, Clifford Brown, what a genius! Like somebody who ha- had virtuosity in his writing, and in addition to his playing, and mm-hmm. you know, he's somebody who, when you listen to the songs that he wrote, you know, you hear him, you hear his sound in the tune, and one of the most important guys I feel like in the '50s who was writing tunes that are considered to be kind of jazz standards. Um, is uh, Benny Golson, and I feel like Benny's tunes are so undeniably him, and like Monk, yeah. and a lot of these guys, and and that to me carries that lineage of like George Gershwin sounding like George Gershwin, and Cole Porter sounding like Cole Porter, and and I think these guys had such deep respect for a lot of these composers who were so active 20, 30 years earlier, yeah. and this, and like when I think of his tune Stablemates. Mm-hmm. I think of a really fun tune to play over that's got a shorter, more truncated form. And you can tell that in the 50s, guys like him, Sonny Rollins, they were experimenting with these smaller forms that they could play more choruses over. And um, yeah, it's just, it, it's like these little pocket kind of tunes, you know? So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll play Stablemates for sure. Mm-hmm. That's the whole tune. And nice. yeah, you know, the, the way that Benny solos on that tune also, it's interesting, like these guys who write write the songs will be even the first to admit that sometimes they play them differently each time. And I, th- I think, Perry, were you at USC the day that Benny was there to give the clinic um, and he talked about that tune? No, I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, he, when he came and he spoke briefly, he was there, he was playing the Jazz Bakery that week, and Shelly got him at the last minute, Shelly Berg, to come over and speak at USC, yeah. and a student asked him about Stablemates, about the first chord, and Benny said, well, sometimes I like playing it with a B-flat 7, sometimes I like playing it with an E minor, it kind of depends on who oh, I'm playing it with. Man. 
And it was really cool to hear his insight on that. And he actually added to that. He said, you know, a lot of guys of my generation who wrote these tunes, people think that there's like the definitive way. You know, he said, every night we were trying to change things and play things a little differently. And sometimes you play with Bud Powell and he'd play something differently than Oscar or than, it was just interesting how he talked about tunes like that, that were like, you know, he composed, you know. So to me, yeah. I, I think that's a great tune. And for those listeners out there wanting to check out some composers from that era, um, Benny Golson and his tunes like Whisper Not, Along Came Betty, oh, yeah. Killer Joe. Yeah. These are all just great tunes that you should go check out. Yeah, um, definitely. Perry, before before we have you play tune, John, that's a great example of one a, a big defining part of, of jazz tunes is the way the harmony sidesteps, like in Stablemates uh-huh. or in tunes like Voyage, or even in what jazz musicians superimpose on a, a songbook tune like Have You Met Miss Jones, where you just play a two-five up a half step. That's such an interesting thing. Or in Miles Davis's example of, you know, going literally between the key of D minor and E flat minor, just yep. little stylizations that jazz musicians put on their own songs or other people's songs. It's really, that's a perfect example of that with stable mates. Yeah. And it also shows what he was thinking about harmonically or, you know, what other players of that time were thinking about harmonically and what they add to tunes. I mean, it'd be so cool to see the lineage of these tunes and who kind of impacted the song and arranged the song. I mean, of course, Miles had a lot of gravity with these kinds of tunes. So the way that Miles played the tunes often is the way that they got written up in the real book or the way that people learn them. But a lot of people of that generation will tell you that every night they were playing these tunes a little differently. Charlie Parker, especially, play heads completely yes. different one time to the next right yeah all right perry what do you got for us um oh i'm gonna do a tune by bill evans that i was working on who i think is another example of a player and a composer that kind of defined the jazz standard repertoire uh but yeah i'm glad you guys mentioned the tunes that you guys played because you know in terms of the arrangement that's really present in Dahoud and the form is really present in Stablemates like that's the cool thing about jazz standards is that you never know what kind of form you're going to be playing on and uh, this Bill Evans tune is Waltz for Debbie that I was Mm. playing over the weekend I thought oh this might be a nice one to play for the podcast and it's melodic like a songbook tune you know and maybe some ways that other jazz standards aren't but uh, the harmony is really interesting the form's a little elongated so Let's give it a shot.
Wow. Beautiful, man. Yeah. That's Walter Davy. It goes a lot of places harmonically, and um, the bass movement is cool on this. Like, he's got a yes. lot of sort of, you know, third inversion, kind of seventh in the bass kind of movement, and it's cool with the counterpoint with the melody as well. Um, but, I mean, this is one that I just never get tired of hearing or, you know, trying to get deeper in the harmony. Uh, Bill Evans, right? That's a whole <laughs> life of study you can get into. When you guys are playing over over tunes and you're improvising single notes, do you ever try the exercise of just sticking to a directional playing, like going as high up as you can and then trying to smoothly negotiate moving back down? I call it kind of like a pendulum exercise. Sure. Do you guys ever experiment with that? Um, not necessarily like particularly recently but what i like about that is the idea of giving yourself a parameter in your playing when mm. you're trying to get creative uh yeah something for students to remember is that like if you limit your possibilities you're not necessarily limiting your playing you might be expanding your creativity in the process so mm -hmm. you know remember from season one pete bernstein talking about parameters and how jim hall was all about that so if you give yourself a little bit of direction like that you can get out of your normal way of playing. So I like that mm -hmm. idea. Yeah. <clears throat> John, you brought up a good point about Benny Golson b having such a sound in the way he composed. And I mean, if we're going to talk about jazz compositions and, you know, a, a jazz composition really being a portrait of the style of the musician, we can't do that without talking about Monk. Yeah. Who basically created a whole genre. Um, I think it would actually be cool if we each talked about a monk song yeah. that was really special to us because <clears throat> I think him in particular is a, a, a true example of, I mean, beyond jazz, just one of the greatest composers of all time and one of the most creative composers who encaptured all of his stylizations in his songs. Definitely. I, I think his humor, I mean, everything. And the, the song I always tell pe that people to check out first of Monk's is just is Blue Monk, you know, because it's such a great study in just such a simple line. You know, we've got... Just like how he, how he phrases a line like that and how the end of the phrase is so important. like when Monk wrote a melody like that he's like telling the musician like hey man go have fun with this let's hear what you have to say on this you know I just love that about his his music Wes I find a little bit like that too where like you the way he plays or the way he wrote songs is it's so inviting to just kind of do your thing over those kinds mm -hmm. of melodies but yeah Blue Monk is a great one to start with definitely um this one is a, a little harder than Blue Monk this I remember really making a real effort to learn and figure out this song. And it took me a while just because it's not a song you can hear your way through. You have to, you have to know it and you have to just really know the shape of it. And that's um, Monk's Mood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so here's Monk's one. Mood.
Nice. Yeah, what a good one. Yeah. That, A-A-B-A form, John, like you mentioned, you know? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That bridge is well, real nice, man. That heavy nice song. Yeah. Heavy song. I mean, and it's so clear Monk, like, was listening to so much stuff. I mean, to write something like that, he was listening to a lot of orchestral stuff. I mean, he talked a lot about how Gershwin impacted him. I mean, that bridge, there's so much tension in there. Mm-hmm. It's so amazing. And, yeah, yeah these guys, is, it, you know, the, the connection to their lineage of where they came to write these songs, is, it's so deep, you know. It's really, really deep. The, the Barry, monk what's t- some Monk tune that stands out to you? There's a lot. The one that I play often is epistrophe you uh-huh. know um which kind of has this uh this sort of moving harmony and half steps very classic monk and then moves up kind of in here so the melody just so fun you know i mean john talked about monk's humor you had to think there was a little bit of something like that coming through when he wrote epistrophe you know it's just this quirky melody but it's, it's i don't know it's so definitive and it's fun to play over with those changes because you talk about tension and release like you're just moving between these uh dominant chords that are going up or down a half step and then that goes up a whole step that same mm-hmm. pattern so and I think, Will, you mentioned something about a pendulum and the plane, and that yeah. harmony is like a pendulum, right? Because it repeats, uh, you know, it repeats C to D, C, C chop to D, C chop to D, then it goes up to E flat to E, E flat to E, and then it does that same thing, but the other way. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it's a really fun tune to get into, and it's kind of A-A-B-A, you know? I've been reading uh, the biography on Monk, and I mean, I think that's such a great way of getting a deeper understanding of these tunes, the context that they were written in, you know, I'm sure we've all read the miles book, which is truly one of the most entertaining and intense books ever. Cause some of the things he says, you're like, wow. And then some of the stories he has are horrifying or amazing. So that's, that's, that's every bit as important as learning the songs is learning the stories and the context that these songs came from, you know, you know what this is making me think, We've, we've done the blues, we've done songbook tunes, now we've done standards. we got to do like a Brazilian music uh, repertoire yeah. one because what I'm noticing is that all these things are just kind of part of the uh, repertoire that we draw from as jazz guitar players, whether it's a songbook tune, a blues, a stan- jazz standard, and certainly music from Brazil is a huge part of that. So Most definitely. we gotta, we got to put that in there. 
Uh, and listener, if you have any like suggestions of topics and stuff that you want to hear, engage with us on our Instagram because somebody was doing that uh, last week and it was wonderful to kind of connect with them. They figured out the tunes we played. Did they get them all right? They got them right. Yeah. Nice. They got them right. Hey, I have a I have a fun idea to wrap things up. Let's let's each discuss one thing we've been working on the last week. Yeah. Um, on guitar, right? Let's sure. let's keep this in the guitar nerd realm. Okay. Um, which is where I live anyway, so that's yeah. not going to be very hard. So I'll start. So something that I've been working on that uh, Tim Lurch showed me when I was hanging with him this summer in Seattle, great guitarist, is is basically uh, somewhat of a counterpoint exercise. Let's take the key of C major. Yeah. So shout out to Tim Lurch if you're listening, Tim. And basically breaking breaking up a C major 7 arpeggio, root and third, to seven and five so you've got ascending and descending right and then you could go up the scale that way but what i like to do is root third then jump to the third in the bass third root fifth third seven five so basically, and then you could descend it. That's a good counterpoint exercise, yeah. And it, like try running it through a one six uh, two five. starts to sound like gospel it starts to sound like classical big shout out to tim lurch for kind of just showing me that which is undoubtedly you know following the lineage of of ted green Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. so counterpoint on guitar um yeah i'll jump in what what have i been working on lately um well trying to get like a really kind of even uh even pick approach for the the legato technique that i use so like focusing a little bit more on downstrokes it'll be hard to see this if you're not on the video but like um just making sure that like the sort of the weight of my pick is where i want it like uh Mm -hmm. that's something i think to really be concerned of so i'll play a little example like It's like if the if you have your pick weighted correctly, your hand, I mean, it really helps your phrasing become a lot um, more accurate in the way you want it, you know, kind of within mm-hmm. the rhythm. So I've been thinking a little bit more about the downstroke and kind of wading into the downstroke a little bit more. And I know you're big on placing your hand at different locations around the neck pickup, depending on the sound you want or the tempo of the song, right? It's more mainly sound, and that mm-hmm. is a, also a relation of volume, right? So mm-hmm. uh, if the sound is, like, s- super loud, you can't really be picking up close to the fingerboard. You've got to be further back because it's just going to be too boomy of a mm-hmm. sound, uh, whereas at a quieter volume, it may not be. Um, so, yeah, but right. it's definitely about tone and how volume relates to that. Uh, but just, you know, 
sort of that property of whether your pick is kind of angling up or angling down a little bit, you know, in terms of like where it is parallel to uh, your strings. That's something I've been thinking a lot about. Yeah, great one, Perry. Great one. How about you, John? Yeah, well, I was working with a student this week on just playing scales in intervallic ways, and, and I hadn't played like my major scale in sixths really mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. studied that you oh, know yeah. and so i sat down so i've just been kind of like one octave against the six strings so for everyone listening or watching on the patreon i'm using kind of the standard first part segovia scale form mm -hmm. and staying in one position and i just kind of like just chromatically going up the neck really trying to get a nice legato tone from every note at slow tempo and and i'm sure like you guys too especially when you're playing a box the faster you go some, you naturally just kind of mute the strings a little bit more you know and so that's the goal for me this week is to kind of tidy that up a little bit and um yeah i don't know it's just one of those things you ever stumble upon something where you're like man that's so obvious why didn't i yes why didn't I shed that the last 20 years? <laughs> yeah, Isn't that, that's, how it, that's how it goes. Yeah. Well, everybody, we hope you've enjoyed episode three of High Action. Uh, be sure to tune in next week. Be sure to tell us all the things you loved and or hated about <laughs> hearing me lead a podcast today. Um, and, you did great, uh, Will. You did just perfect. Five stars oh, for you. Five stars. Great. Well, I, I don't know if I'd go for quite five stars. But. <laughs> out of so, 15. Out of 15 stars. Yeah. <laughs> And one last gentle reminder, 5 out of 15, to join us on Patreon. And again, we've got the videos of all the stuff that we're discussing. So we will see you guys next week for episode four of High Action. Yeah. Enjoy this composition written by Mr. Perry Smith. <laughs> <laughs>